Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tollett. Alexa, what's going on? Hey, Yoel. Uh, not too much. It's dark out. You know, I, I read an article that we should put in the show notes about the ferocious dispute between anti and pro daylight savings time people um, apparently got very ugly and personal. And uh, Marco Rubio, who I don't agree with him on much, but he is on the uh, make daylight savings time the time year round, or else he's for getting rid of it entirely. I forget which. But anyway, he is against changing the clocks, which I am for. Okay, so you are you're against changing the clocks, but you don't care which time it's on? I don't care which way it goes. I have no preference there, but uh, hmm. I hate changing the clocks. Hmm. Interesting. I'm just pro changing the clocks. I don't care how much we change them or what direction. I would prefer we change the clocks more often, actually. 12 hours. <laughs> Every week, It's we roll a die and we see how much we change the clocks by. <laughs> Yeah, man, I know you're supposed to like fall back because you get to sleep in an extra hour, but it's just thrown me off. I'm tired too early. I'm awake too early. It's bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't think I care too much. I mean, I just like I dislike that there's less light. That's my only concern, which I don't think that we can fix no matter how we set the clocks. Somehow we need to move the earth closer to the sun. Is yes. that how it works? <laughs> that will be my team. <laughs> Good. Um, shall we talk about what we're drinking? Uh, yeah, let's do that. I'm excited for my beer. I'm excited for my beer and for your beer. W what have you got? Uh, I have a beer from Evil Twin Brewing. It's called Once You Label IPA, You Negate IPA, which I feel like has some like cool misattribution of arousal vibes going, you know? Oh, I love it. I love it. It's. I'm a little disappointed that it's so small, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, all my beers will now seem small in comparison to last week's beer. Puny. Yeah, that's right. That was that was your high point, and it's all downhill from here. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so I have. Uh, let Let me grab it here so I can tell the listeners what it is. So uh, this is uh, from the beer store that I finally made it to today. Uh, that I've been meaning to check out for a while. Uh, so this is a beer only establishment. Uh, and it's sort of in the neighborhood. Uh, this is a beer from Brasserie Harakana. And this is a uh, 51 Biru Sake. And it's evidently a rice beer that has sake in it. So Weird. it could be really fucking terrible. It sounds gross, to be honest. <laughs> I'm rolling the dice here for, for all of you listeners. I respect uh, your bravery. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I have to keep up with you. I mean, like, you drank that enormous beer last time, and it frankly put me to shame. And I was like, I got to kind of get edgier or else, like, Alexa's <laughs> just going to leave me behind. We're just going to have right. to, like, it's going to be, like, two psychologists, five beers and six beers. I'm just going to keep up. Yeah. Two psychologists, liver transplant. Let's <laughs> let's crack them open. I like this. Um, this is a double IPA. And sometimes I find, like, they're too heavy tasting or something like that too like out boozy tasting um yeah. but this one tastes like very flavorful and nice and it's got a very cool can um it's hard to describe it's got like a geometric pattern on the front that has pictures of logs in various degrees of transparency that's my description wow I can't really see it well, um, but I will take your word for it. We will put this on our new uh, untapped profile, by the way, yeah. where we are for Beers Pod. So yes, please come be friends with us on there. Um, so this is interesting. It definitely tastes and smells a bit ricey. Mm -hmm. um, it's not strong. It's kind of is like a sake beer hybrid. It's if you imagine sake, but in beer form, that's kind of what it is. I, I like it. I don't know if it's for everybody. Yeah, I guess I don't know why my initial reaction was that it would be gross, um, I feel like there's always a risk when you combine two things that you like that it will turn out worse than either of them in isolation. But that's very pessimistic. There's a disgust skill item, I think, about uh, eating ketchup on ice cream, if I'm remembering that oh. correctly. And it, it's, it has a similar sort of feeling oh. to it, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, two things that are good, but together are objectionable. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's actually, that's an interesting phenomenon that maybe it feels a little understudied, right? 
It's like, because in, in discussed research, there's definitely this known phenomenon of like contamination of like a small amount of something bad taints like a much larger amount of a substance. If you imagine like you have a big pot of soup, one fly falls into it. Lots of people are like, I'm not going to eat that. Uh, but this is, you combine two things that are positive on their own, but in combination become repugnant. That's sort of cool, right? It is cool. Yeah. I also like the, the finding that, um, when people drink something that they like, but they're expecting something else that they're really grossed out by it. Like when you think that you're about to drink some water, but instead you drink like sweet tea or something and you're like, holy shit, this is disgusting, which actually I think sweet tea is always disgusting, but some people like it, but if they're not expecting it, they think it's disgusting. I do enjoy a good sweet tea, particularly if it's mixed with lemonade. Mm -hmm. Mm. Is that like a, that's like a Arnold Palmer. I believe it is, but I, I always feel so fucking goofy ordering that. I just say iced tea and lemonade. But uh -huh. maybe then they're like, what, are you too good to order an Arnold Palmer? You, you just know, want I don't a fucking know. Arnold Palmer? <laughs> you just want an Arnold Palmer, dude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait. I have another disgust-related... Um, I think that I've discovered this like interesting example. So what do you think, Yoel? Um, how would you react if for Christmas I bought you a candle that is scented like cheese? <laughs> I would... I would think you didn't like me very much. Right, but why? Cheese smells good and tastes good. Why don't people want <sighs> cheese scented candles? <laughs> That's great. There's any number of smells where you're like, I like that smell, but in moderation. Like, do you want your house to smell like steak all the time? <laughs> or bacon? There must actually be bacon scented candles. Yeah, right? and actually there are cheese scented candles. I thought I was going to invent it, but um, they exist. But I think they're wildly unpopular. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Okay, so topics. Um, so what are we going to talk about today? We wanted to talk for a while about pre-registration. Um, and this was sparked for me by listening to an episode of a podcast that I, I really like. Um, and that podcast is called Quantitude. They did an episode about pre-registration that I, to be honest, found a little frustrating. And I was like yelling at the... Uh, at the phone, uh -huh. which is my podcast player, all the the whole time. Uh -huh. Well, no, not the whole time, about half the time. And the great thing about having your own podcast is that you can then make a podcast about what you think was wrong with other people's podcasts. Yeah, and then maybe the Quantitude people will listen to it and they'll yell at their phones. I can only hope so. Yes, I will. Um, I'm I'm planning to campaign to to make them listen to this and hopefully it will it will aggravate them and maybe they can then record a podcast about how we're wrong and it, it's just this fucking like hundreds of podcasts later every everybody hates pre-registration <laughs> wait you think we're gonna lose uh i i think that everybody's gonna lose so so um so this is a topic that we had planned to talk about Already and then today uh, on Twitter, there was a lot of discussion about uh, a particular paper that we're going to talk about, and a lot of this discussion was about this kind of more meta issue of uh, in what way is it right to criticize papers publicly, particularly right. if you're going to do that in like a short form way, like a tweet, particularly if the authors of those papers aren't uh, senior, um, and. I think that those are interesting discussions that we've talked about in the past. We're not going to talk about that at all. I thought that the paper was an interesting way of of talking about pre-registration, actually, because there are reasons, I think, to be somewhat skeptical of the results, and many of them have to do with analytic flexibility. Mm -hmm. So folks who have been paying attention to this for a while will just say as a shorthand, you know, interaction P equals 0.04, not pre-registered. And kind of leave it at that, like, oh, mm -hmm. that's why you shouldn't trust this finding. And I think it's useful to sort of unpack that a bit and say, like, okay, well, what do we mean there, right? Like, what are the researcher degrees of freedom that are available to somebody right. when they're doing a non-pre-registered analysis, right? And, mm -hmm. and just to be clear, none of this is to imply that anybody started out with any sort of, like, you know, evil intentions of, oh, I'm totally going to like create something that isn't there and get it published. And like, they're rubbing, rubbing their hands together and like cackling maniacally. Um, I think as we'll talk about, like the much more plausible story is you convince yourself, right? Um, so yeah, uh, Alexa, do you want to, do you want to describe what this paper is? Yeah. So the, the headline for this paper or this paper was inspired according to the, the authors of the paper um, by Cardi B who at some point has uttered the statement, hoes don't get cold. 
Um, and so, Wait, were you were you familiar with this statement being attributed to Cardi B before I'm, this all? I wish I were that cool, but I was not familiar with that <laughs> statement before. <laughs> Barely know who Cardi B is, but okay, sorry, go on. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, the paper seeks to test this idea. Um, so I guess what Cardi B was referring to when she said hoes don't get cold is this idea that like when you're outside waiting out waiting outside of a club and you're like dressed to be in a club that some people uh, don't feel cold when they're they're waiting in line um, on a cold day uh, before they get into a club. And so the the paper uh, essentially examines, uh, whether there is a relationship between self-objectification and how cold people feel in these kinds of contexts. Um, and so the idea is that, uh, generally speaking, there should be a relationship between the amount of clothing that somebody is wearing and how cold they feel. The paper focuses specifically on women, um, such that if you're wearing less cold, cl- less clothing and it's a cold day, then you should feel colder. Um, and what they hypothesize is that this is moderated by self-objectification. Um, so this relationship should be there for people who are low on self-objectification, but for people who are high on self-objectification, so like are constantly like thinking about what they look and worrying about what other people think, uh, that this objectification process um, creates sort of like a disconnect between them and their physical bodies or something like that. Um, and so they actually feel the cold less. Um, and so you don't see this same relationship between the amount of skin somebody is showing, um, and the cold that they feel. Uh, so yeah, this is what they test and they do this by, um, going to bars and, uh, finding participants who are in line at these bars. They, uh, assess self-objectification with a self-objectification scale, which we might get into a little bit. Um, they assess the amount of skin showing by taking anonymous pictures of the people um, and I think coding for whether or not there is clothing present or absent on um, various body parts that they subdivide the body into. Um, and then they assess felt temperature as I believe a self-report about how cold it is, but there are other ways of assessing um, felt temperature as well, which which starts to get into this um, this topic of uh, analytical flexibility. Um, and I agree. So the sort of heuristic uh, interaction p equals 0.04, not pre-registered, dismiss it. Um, I think that heuristic is probably quite reliable. Um, but I also if we're going to consider more information than that, one thing that we probably want to consider is, you know, how much flexibility is there. So, um, so if we know what other variables are measured and we know how many other ways there are to analyze the study, or at least we have some information about that, um, then that might suggest to us that uh, it's possible that the results are sort of contingent upon this specific analysis choice. Um, and in this case, we can actually sort of address that directly. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I guess we should say the the actual name of the paper and the authors. So um, the name of the paper is When Looking Hot Means Not Feeling Cold, Evidence That Self-Objectification Inhibits Feelings of Being Cold by Roxanne Felig et al., published in the British Journal of Social Psychology this year. First of all, it seems to me that, you know, I, I do love field data. In this case, to test this specific theory... I don't really see that the field data are necessary, right? So the idea is if you're higher on self-objectification, which is uh, operationalized as uh, eight questions that are things like, I rarely compare how I look with how other people look. That would be a reversed item. During the day, I think about how I look many times. I often worry about whether the clothes I am wearing make me look good. So it's stuff about you worry about whether you look good to other people, basically. Mm-hmm. So... The idea here is you measure this, right? You you measure people's level of self-objectification, and then the theory should say that you are less sensitive to your what your body is telling you when you are high on this on this construct, right? So it ought to be that if you put these people in a cold room in the lab, it feels less cold to them. It ought to be that they experience hunger pangs less. It ought to be that if you give them mild electric shocks, they'll feel less painful, right? So like I'm, I, like I said, I love field data. 
I don't know what the field data are adding here theoretically. They kind of just seem like they make it harder to measure stuff, don't so, they? Yes, I. but I wouldn't be surprised in this case if the authors, I, I have no idea if they would say this, but I wouldn't be surprised if they said like, we were kind of interested in like the cool factor of literally testing Cardi B's statement, right? Like they, they do say that this was the inspiration for the paper. Um, and uh, I guess the favorable version would be, you know, there's this like idea out there in the like pop music world or whatever, um, pop culture, and that they have this sort of like theoretical framework that could lend some understanding to that. And so, um, so they were like particularly interested in testing it in this way. The problem is that when you do this sort of a field study, uh, I think there's kind of more problems that can come up and therefore kind of analytic decisions that you have to make. So one issue that they have to deal with is not everybody fills out every part of the survey. And uh, some people seem like they're satisfying. So they say the same answer, uh, the same, they circle the same number for every mm-hmm. question on the self-objectification self-object- survey. Mm-hmm. So what they choose to do is they just choose to drop everybody who has any missing data, mm-hmm. even if those missing data aren't required for a specific analysis. And I actually looked at the data file and went and checked. Most of the missing data, in fact, are women who don't want to write down their weight. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, not super surprising. Mm-hmm. Does that give you reason to think that they're bad subjects in other ways? Right. Like, I don't really think so. No. They they want to co-vary BMI later in a different analysis, right? So I think it's defensible to say we want to drop all of those subjects because we want a consistent set of subjects across analyses. But it doesn't let you maximally use the data. And there's actually quite a few people who you're dropping. You're dropping there um, from 224 originally. You're dropping 31, mostly for not writing down their weight. And then you're dropping six more who just give a uniform response on on the um, self-objectification skill. Again, that seems reasonable. It seems like they weren't paying attention. Mm, yeah. But, probably. you know... Probably it's defensible, mm-hmm. let's say. Right. But again, you don't know whether they made the decision before or or after. Um, so it turns out that when you reanalyze the data, making different exclusion decisions, the results look really different. So the way they do it, drop everybody who responds uniformly uh, to the self-objectification scale and drop everybody who has incomplete data on something else. The p-value of the key interaction, so the model here is they're predicting subjective coldness from um, self-objectification, so that's continuous. Uh, Their continuous measure of how clothed the people are, so that's based on photos, and then the raters use this rubric that you've already mentioned to assign them a score from zero to seven, uh, where seven is actually um, they're they're wearing less clothing. Plus, in there as a covariate, also the real temperature on that day. So when you have that model, the key p-value for the interaction, um, such that when you're less clothed, you feel uh, you don't feel cold as much if you're a high self-objectifier. Um, that's P equals 0.036. If you just say, okay, we're going to include just everybody, then the p-value becomes for that interaction becomes 0.22. If you include only the people uh, who you dropped based on incomplete data, but you do exclude the people who are satisficing on the scale, the p-value is still 0.22. Right, So it's really the decision to drop those people who wouldn't write down their weight mm-hmm. primarily. That's the, that's the reason their data are incomplete. That gets your p-value under 0.05. Mm-hmm. And then you start to, to ask yourself, well, you know, how much were those decisions made after seeing the data, right? Right. Right. So the, this idea of like, maybe you could come up with a reason why somebody's data would not be as dependable if they don't report their weight. Um, that becomes much more compelling if somebody has said ahead of time, like, it's really important that we're not including people that don't report their weight. This is the plan from the start. Um, then, as you know, like, then if you run the analyses multiple ways, you find out that P is less than 0.05 when you exclude those people, and then you decide, okay, um, we should exclude those people. And then you start thinking about reasons why. 
Yeah, and crucially, people are pretty good at convincing themselves that that's actually then the right call, right? It doesn't require malice, right? It just requires motivated reasoning. And, and even my description is maybe a little bit like unfair. So I think often when we go into studies, if you don't pre-register them, actually, there's like a lot of, like you say, defensible paths that you can take that you probably consider even ahead of time. So so it is plausible that researchers considered all of these like different choices ahead of time and had reasons for the merits for different ones. And so, you know, when I said, you know, imagine they're seeing that the p-value is less than 0.05 and now they're coming up with reasons to exclude uh, people who didn't report their weight, it's entirely possible that they had already thought of some of those things um, so that, you know, but there's still the flexibility, which is critical. Right, right. And I think that's the really important thing here is that like these approaches are defensible, right? It's not like people are doing anything that like you might not be able to defend a priori. It's just, well, we don't know what the plan was, right? They didn't write down the plan before beforehand. And so we don't know what they intended. Um, along those same lines, they also have a measure of what temperature do you think it is right now? So in degrees, right? right? Conceptually, that seems similar to felt coldness, right? So if you feel less cold, you might think it's warmer. It turns out when you use that variable as the dV, there the effect, uh, the interaction p-value is 0.79, right? So it's like nowhere close to significant. Mm -hmm. So again, there you have to ask, okay, what was the plan? Like you included that in the questionnaire. Presumably at some point you thought it was worth asking. Mm -hmm. Then by the time you get to the write-up, it's not mentioned. Right. And uh, I think we'll probably get into this kind of thing when we start talking more about the specifics of pre-registration and what pre-registration allows you to do and doesn't allow you to do. Um, but it would also be one thing if these were presented as exploratory analyses, right? So if this was like not a pre-registered paper, but the authors were saying like, okay, um, we want to measure a bunch of stuff and explore it, and we're going to report the results as exploratory, in which case you likely wouldn't be result reporting p-values because um, they start to lose meaning as you uh, start to have more flexibility and conduct more analyses. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's really true here. So I think that these are presented in a somewhat confirmatory fashion. And, and perhaps this is unfair, but going sort of into the media coverage of this finding. So um, so this has gotten quite a bit of coverage in the media. Um, one article that I saw was published in the Huffington Post. Um, the article is called Cardi B's Hose Don't Get Cold Theory Proven Right After All. I love that that makes it sound like there was a vigorous debate. Scientists <laughs> had basically given up on Cardi B's Hose Don't Get Cold Theory. And now this paper has really turned the field around. There was a huge podcast battle about it going back and forth before we finally figured it out, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, in this, this article, uh, the journalist interviews uh, the first author, Felig, who says, um, we wanted to test that scientifically, meaning that idea of Cardi B's. Um, and so we did it, and it's true. Uh, and that that suggests quite a confirmatory approach, um, which I don't think is justified, given what was actually done in this paper. Yeah, so I realize not everybody feels this way. But to me, one thing that crosses a line is you had a measure in there that a reasonable person would think is is relevant. And by that, I mean, what temperature do you think it is? Right. And you thought it was relevant enough to include it on the questionnaire. It doesn't behave in a theoretically consistent way. And so you just don't mention it in the write-up at all. That, that you know, for me, that that's like a bridge too far. Like pre-registered or not, um, I, I would not feel comfortable doing that. If one of my students was like, let's just leave this thing out that we measured and just like pretend we never measured it, I'd be like, no. You have to say what you measured, and if that doesn't work out well for you, well, too bad. You know, maybe come up with a convincing story for, I don't know, people's estimates of the temperature actually are pretty good because they look at their phone and it tells them what temperature it is. Something, right? Like, mm -hmm. but you can't just sweep it under the rug and pretend that it was never done. Right. It really um, impairs the ability of the reader to sort of evaluate how compelling the results are when they don't know all of the information. Right. Like you can't, I've mentioned, 
as we were discussing earlier, that the amount of flexibility sort of matters. Um, and if you don't know all of the variables that were measured, then you can't assess the amount of flexibility that was there. Right. And here, you know, I do want to point out, they did put their materials on the OSF, yeah. right? So you can see their questionnaire. They put their full data file. That's how mm -hmm. I was able to do some of these analysis. That's great. But most people are not crazy enough to dig around on the OSF, right? right? And I think as a researcher, it's incumbent on you to say, here's the stuff that we collected that might undermine our conclusions, right? Mm -hmm. Like, here's something that the average reader would want to know that works against us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'm with you. Sweet. <laughs> Great. So we don't have to fight. Um, yeah. So, so uh, anything else about this paper or, or do you want to move on to kind of pre-registration more broadly? I do want to speculate that the conclusions of the paper might not be totally in line with Cardi B's original statement. So I see Cardi B's original statement as being like somewhat empowered, you know, hoes don't get cold. Like Cardi B is saying, like, I don't get cold. Oh, to, to be clear, Cardi B is not talking about those hoes. She's saying, like, us hoes don't get cold. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the conclusion in the article uh, is basically that when you don't get cold, it's because you're self-objectifying. And the way that they define self-objectifying is by saying women view their body as an ob So women who are self-objectifying view their body as an object that exists for the pleasure of others rather than as an entity to experience subjectively. And while I don't know that much about Cardi B, I don't think she would say that. I think Cardi B is an empowered woman. That's right. Cardi B is just into looking hot. And, you know, <laughs> that's cool. It's working out for her, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so as I mentioned at the top, um, this podcast, Quantitude, which is hosted by uh, two methodologists, Patrick Curran and Greg Hancock, they recently uh, posted an episode called In Defense of Researcher Degrees of Freedom. It's season three, episode seven, if you'd like to listen to it. So first of all, like, I highly recommend this podcast. I listen to it all the time. I feel like I learn a ton. They are super funny, super smart, super knowledgeable. Um, and uh, I, I just find it like a really enjoyable listen. In this particular case, I was less sold. And I'm curious, like, so I'll say my overall reaction was like in the first half where I thought they gave a great description of what are researcher degrees of freedom? What is the garden of forking paths? How does this stuff work? And, you know, really just nailed the description of the problem. And they were like, and yeah, we think that's a real problem, and that's something that the field needs to address. And then in the second half, I feel like it took this turn where it was like, well, yeah, even though it's a real problem, all of these, these, the uh, the solution, you know, has all of these issues that make it basically unworkable in a lot of cases. And I just was like, wait, but that that, that kind of to me doesn't follow. Um, and I found that that to be particularly frustrating because I feel like, oh man, you get it, like you get what the issue is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it felt, it did feel like they really do get the issue of researcher degrees of freedom. And I agree that they provided a really, yeah, a clear, compelling explanation of that in the first part of the podcast. And I was with them for much of that. Um, I guess I think where the disconnect comes in for me um, is the discussion of pre-registration. So they seem to have this like great understanding of the problem but not a great understanding of the solution, or at least to me, what seemed like very, um, very like well rebutted um, misconceptions about pre-registration um, were misconceptions that were expressed in the podcast. Um, so that, yeah, my take was that the understanding of pre-registration and what you can and cannot do in a pre-registration um, was missing, or that's at least where I disagreed. That's where I started getting like, frustrated and, you know, pulling out quotes and frantically typing about what we would talk about in this podcast. Wow. I don't think I've ever seen you frustrated in that way. Well, riled up. <laughs> These dudes really got under your skin, huh? So uh, recently um, I was uh, talking to a friend of mine, uh, Jillian, and then um, my partner Megan about narcissism. And they were talking about whether I can be narcissistic. Um, and Megan said, the only time that you're narcissistic is when you talk about p-hacking. <laughs> so <laughs> apparently that's the time that I'm an asshole. <laughs> it brings out all of your worst tendencies. <laughs> well, 
What are you going to do? So um, you've outlined a few of the things that that they said, like the major themes that they hit on that you thought were were ill-conceived. Um, do you want to start with a, the first one of those that we have in the document here? Yeah, let's do that. So uh, I think this is good because I think this is one is a really important misconception to address. Um, and so this misconception is that pre-registration or like the endorsement or use of pre-registration implies that scientists can't be trusted, right? So the idea here is that if we are requiring people to say what they're going to do in advance um, and publish this in an online repository somewhere, um, that what that implies is that we don't trust people to say what they actually did or to say what they actually hypothesized or whatever. And I think the even the sort of more um, unforgiving version is that we are suggesting that people will just lie if we don't force them to tell the truth. Um, and so in the podcast, they talk a little bit about, you know, um, this implies that researchers are naughty children who need to be better parented and things like that. Um, and right. So we, t I think we sort of had touched on this a little bit in our discussion of the, the hot cold paper. Um, but I, I think that it's um, advocates of pre-registration, I think, go out of their way to um, convey that p-hacking, which is, I think, one of the primary um, research practices that pre-registration is designed to prevent, um, doesn't happen because people are lying or malicious or um, are intentionally trying to mislead. Um, it just is like a consequence of human nature and motivated reasoning. Uh, and so pre-registration doesn't, um, isn't intended to keep a pull from lying. It's intended to, uh, keep even like unconscious biases and motivations from seeping into the way that we analyze our data analysis. So in other words, I don't think pre-registration in any way applies malintent, um, in researchers. Yeah. I, and in fact, you know, as they point out in this episode, if somebody's just willing to lie, they can just fake their data. Right. So pre-registration is not going to stop somebody who's really determined to mislead. All it's going to do is to make people say in advance what they plan to do. Right. So that that relies on people being honest about the process. Um, and certainly you can pre-register a study that you then falsify in order to give the effect that you want. Right, right. Yeah, so I, I don't know. Like this reaction to me, it feels a little bit like just a reaction to the idea that they want us to do something else. And, you know, academics are used to doing things their own way. And I think particularly to people who've been in the field a while, as now they're coming with these new requirements and this new bureaucracy, uh -huh. and they want us to do this extra stuff. But, you know, to we, we don't blindly trust people's results, right? Like, we this is part of the reason that you're required to share data, is I have a responsibility as a researcher if I think that you might have analyzed your data wrong to see for myself, right? And it doesn't mean that I globally don't trust people. It means that we realize that people are human and fallible and are prone to these errors and biases and that we can best check up on each other when there's formal mechanisms for doing that. Right. They they make one interesting statement in the, the podcast about this issue. So they say um, we have to have trust. And I actually think that that's um, an interesting thing to debate. So first, I think one question is what, what exactly does it mean to trust researchers to analyze their data appropriately? Um, so there are things, there are ways in which I would agree with that statement, right? So something like we have to have trust that researchers are not deliberately lying to us. And I guess it's not even necessarily that we have to have that, but that like, I'm willing to go that far and hope that, you know, the number of people who are willing to deliberately sort of like um, like bald base lie about what they did or commit fraud or whatever is, is small enough that that doesn't become this huge problem. Um, but if we have to have trust means we have to trust that researchers um, can tell us what their plan was when they were putting together a study after the fact um, and that they will 
conduct that plan um, or tell us when they deviate from that plan. Like to me, that becomes not an issue of trust. It just becomes an issue of like my um, understanding of the human's capacity for memory. Like I don't remember what I planned to like how exactly I planned to analyze data in a study almost ever. I mean, there's, there's so much flexibility, um, so many ways you could define, uh, things like exclusions, uh, outliers, um, like we were talking about earlier. And many of these things are plausible. So it's just like totally unfeasible to imagine that people are following their plan because they're trustworthy. Yeah. I mean, what it gets down to is we know that everybody has some motivation. And I think uh, uh, Greg made this point of beyond just getting published, typically you do the study because you think the thing is going to work, right? Nobody's like, I'm planning for an effect size of zero. I mean, t- typically you think that the the thing is going to, you're going to find something, right? And so you have that belief that there's something in there and that nudges you towards certain analytic decisions. We just know that that's true. And that's not a sign of like moral failing on the part of the researcher. We just know that that's human nature. And to me, that's all the pre-registration is trying to do here is to control that a bit or even even weaker than that to label, right? Because I think as we'll get into, there's nothing that says you can't change your pre-registered plan as long as you say that you're doing that, right? right? Yeah. Um, so what about what about the second point that you noted here? The idea that pre-registration precludes the use of human judgment in the process of data analysis. So like there's a quote that you have here, which I think is good. Um, is the long con that we do all research just computer programmed, right? Do we even need the researcher if everything is pre-registered? Yeah, right. And in this part of the episode, they they used the analogy of flight. Um, so I guess when you are flying in an airplane, the airplane is doing almost everything, but the pilot can sort of like override the airplane at some points. Um, and the idea is that it's important for the pilot to be able to override the airplane. Otherwise, like we're putting people in danger or something like that, right? Um, and so I think that the the um, podcasters are suggesting that when we're analyzing our data, there are times when we make a plan ahead of time and it's just not going to work. We can't plan for every sort of unanticipated finding or event. Um, and so if we just sort of like go on autopilot, uh, then we could end up drawing really uh, like misleading conclusions or analyzing data in totally inappropriate ways. And those are all totally legitimate concerns if pre-registration prevented people from deviating from the pre-registration, but it doesn't. Um, So if you sort of like look at OSF's page, which I I imagine like if you were trying to pre-register for the first time, you were like, how does this work? Like, what am I supposed to do? You might Google pre-registration. For me, the first thing that comes up is OSF's page on a pre-registration. And they have these like sort of responses to um, potential like FAQs or questions or concerns about how pre-registration works. And I bring this up because um, when we're saying like, oh, what is pre-registration? I mean, many people, there's a lot of variation in how people pre-register. And so I bring this up because I think this is at least, we can sort of plausibly treat this as a a major authority on pre-registration and how it should work and what is allowed and what is not. Um, And they're very explicit about the fact that you can deviate from your pre-registration. All you need to do is say that you deviate. And there are many cases when you should deviate from a pre-registration. So they give good examples. Like if you pre-register that you're not going to exclude anyone and then you collect some data and it turns out that your effect is totally driven by these two outliers that um, should obviously be excluded right maybe maybe they're even like conceptually nonsense like you could imagine a reaction time test where someone takes like an hour to respond to a go no go task or something right um so obviously you shouldn't exclude those people um but if you didn't pre-register it this sort of like uh, extreme version of what a uh, completely unchangeable pre-registration plan would be is that like you just include them and you're forced to and you can't report the analysis with those people excluded. You can. You just say in your paper, you know, we noticed these two outliers. We didn't plan to pre-reg or we didn't plan to exclude anyone, 
but we thought we had a pretty good reason to exclude these people, and here's what the analyses look like when we do. Right. How often do you end up deviating from your pre-registration in some way? I think quite often. Yeah. So I don't think that there's been any time that I've run a pre-registered study where I have done exactly what we pre-registered and nothing beyond that. And that was it. Um, so there are times when I guess we've included exploratory analyses that, so like times when we felt that there was a better way to do the analysis um, that was different than what we pre-registered. So we report both. Um, yeah, times when we didn't anticipate good reasons to exclude people. And we always just report the data both ways and make the data available. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the same for me, right? So often it's the case that once we actually do the analyses or, or collect the data, we're like, oh, we didn't anticipate this contingency or, oh, this doesn't work that the way that we thought it would, or even that the pre-registration just has an error. It's like, you know, one that I did recently, this is so embarrassing. I put in the pre-registration, I'm going to split on this dichotomous variable, and then I'm going to have the variable in the model. It's like, okay, well, that's fucking stupid, right? So I have to like bite the bullet and be like, oh, this pre-registration had a mistake and we're not going to do that. And you look kind of dumb, uh-huh. right? I, uh-huh. I don't love it. But it's also not like, well, I guess now this project has to go in the garbage. It's just like, well, you have to own the fact that you like made a mistake in writing down what you were planning to do, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. I also, I just feel like this must just be something that I'm almost like misunderstanding or something, but the idea that it precludes the use of human judgment. It's like you, the human, are writing the pre-registration, using your judgment to decide what to do. And I would say the more you understand your area, um, the more you know the topic, the more that you've run studies on this before, the more you can anticipate contingencies, mm-hmm. right? You know, like, oh, yeah, in the past, it's been that people gave wonky responses to this question. So now I'm going to pre-register. If response is wonky in this way, then we do this, mm-hmm. right? So I feel like it absolutely reflects your expertise and judgment as a researcher in writing a good pre-registration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And also, as you know, like, uh, it gets much easier over time, right? So yeah, you start to recognize the common mistakes and anticipate them and things like that. And um, yeah, maybe one day I will write the perfect pre-registration and it won't change anything. <laughs> You know, it's nice to have something to aspire to. Exactly. Um, how's your beer situation? Um, I'm I'm ready for a, a beer renewal. Excellent. Let's renew beers, and uh, we'll be back in a sec. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention or DM us and we'll see it. If you'd like to email us, fourbeerspod at gmail.com is the show's email address. Um, that goes to all three of us. Finally, our website, fourbeers.com. You can listen to any of our episodes there. Drop us a line there as well if you like. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, please just rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Helps people 
discover the show. Um, oh, and as I mentioned uh, earlier in the show, we are now on Untapped. Username is Four Beers Pod, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes as well, so you can follow along with the beers that we are drinking. Speaking of, Alexa, what have you got? I know I talked a big game in the first half of the podcast, but I'm going to up the number of beers in the show, but I'm still drinking my first beer, and I'm going to stick oh, with it. no. <laughs> Don't let Mickey find out. He's going to be so disappointed. You're like his <laughs> like golden child or whatever, and I'm the, <laughs> the redheaded stepchild, and now, now you're going to be on the outs. Well, I guess I got to take one, take one for the podcast team. Yes, I appreciate that. Um, so I have, uh, this is from a brewery called, it looks like Matera, and it's a Tam Tam Session IPA. And it has a little picture here of a beer can playing on some kegs. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with the Montreal lifestyle, Tam Tams is a thing that happens during the summer, I believe every Sunday at the base of Montreal, a bunch of like hippies and weirdos get together and like drum circle and like dance around and get high i didn't know that oh dude it's pretty if well i don't think they're going to be doing it if during your visit here um but you know come back in the summer it is okay it's pretty dope okay <laughs> mickey i think was a he was a you know weekly attendee oh my gosh that makes so much sense <laughs> right <laughs> all right um i'm gonna crack this open uh-oh I shook it a little. That was bad. That's <laughs> oh, nice. It's not IPA, so it's hoppy, but it's definitely kind of like juicy and citrusy. Thirst quenching beer, generously dry hopped with fruity and supra tropical aromas. Sounds delicious. Yeah, it's good. I don't know what supra tropical means, but um, I'm I'm all for it. Yep. Right. So we were talking before the break. With it, with the idea of uh, about the idea of judgment, right? Um, so, is it the case that when you pre-register that it removes your kind of ability to make judgment calls as a researcher? Mm -hmm. And one thing that I was like a little puzzled about, and that maybe you can clarify for me, is that they seem to think that in principle, our studies are so complicated that you can't possibly come up with all the contingencies in advance. Like, do you feel like that's what they were saying? I mean, I, I did have the thought as I was listening to the podcast that I was like, they must be doing research that's way more complicated than my research. Um, and that's entirely possible. Um, but I, so one of the things that they express concern about and again, I, I think this would be a valid concern if it were indeed the case that you could not deviate from your pre-registered plan at all, um, or that you had to like basically like spell out a path that you're definitely going to follow, or a set of steps that you're definitely going to follow, and that none of these steps can be data dependent, right? If you imagine that scenario, um, then that would present certain problems. So for instance, they say... Um, I would argue in many cases that not examining the characteristics of your data and understanding the impacts it has on the outcomes is unethical, right? And so they talk a little bit about how it would be problematic to do the analyses for your study without, for instance, like testing statistical assumptions and things like that. Um, and here what the, you know, the like OSF FAQ would say to that is that you can absolutely test model assumptions. Um, and what they suggest is exactly what you describe, UL. So they suggest uh, the optimal scenario is um, planning if-then rules, right? So like if my, um, I don't know, model violates this assumption, then I will do this. Um, and this applies also to like decisions about exclusions and things like that. Um, so the idea is that um, in the optimal scenario, you could anticipate most of those decision points and decide how you're going to make a decision at those points. Um, but the, the answer to that question goes on to say, um, in the event that you need to conduct an unplanned analysis, pre-registration pre does not prevent you from doing so. Um, pre-registration simply makes clear which analyses are planned and which were not. Right, right. So I guess you might say, like, look, if the 
analyses we do are so dependent on these contingencies that if you write a pre-registration, it's quite unlikely that you're going to be able to follow it at all because you just can't anticipate all the contingencies. Well, I mean, I think that would make the pre-registration less useful, right? Like if, if like in every case you're like, well, actually this thing we didn't plan for happened. And so we have to substantially deviate. I mean, at least it still encourages you to be clear about which analyses were planned and which ones weren't and how things went wrong. But I would concede at that point, it's, it's less useful to pre-register just because, you know, obviously pre-registration is most useful when you can anticipate some of the stuff that's going to happen and plan in advance. Right. But like, is that really the case? I mean, that just seems to me to be hard to believe that if you're an expert in an area, you couldn't at least anticipate most of the contingencies that might come up. Right. There was something that I wasn't totally clear on, and maybe you can answer this for me, Yoel. So like they, at, at some point they were like, there are certain kinds of um, analyses or I guess like kinds of studies where pre-registration just doesn't seem appropriate or it, it seems like it would be impossible. Um, and they talk about model comparison and exploratory factor analysis. And uh, so pre-registration is intended to allow us to draw more reliable confirmatory conclusions, right? And to distinguish between confirmatory hypothesis testing and exploratory analyses. Um, and it wasn't clear to me whether these were cases where people would try be trying to draw confirmatory conclusions. I don't know anything about model comparison. So like I'm out of my depth here. Um, my understanding of exploratory factor analysis is that it's just that. So like there's, there's a clear distinction in factor analysis between confirmatory and exploratory. And I would think that pre-registration would be more appropriate for the former than the latter. Um, but these are all sort of things that I don't do very often. Yeah. So when I've done this, uh, you know, I've done EFA studies where then I just don't pre-register that, right? Mm -hmm. I think of that as exploratory and right. then I might have a confirmatory study where maybe you do a CFA and you would pre-register that or, or whatever. So I, I guess it's, if they're saying, well, you know, for some studies that are just purely exploratory, pre-registration is less useful Then yeah. I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't disagree with that at all. No. Um, you know, I don't do a ton of model comparison either. I don't see why in principle you can't pre-register. Here's the four models we're going to compare. Here's how we're going to parameterize them. Here's the fit statistics that we're, right? Like, I mean, because I do, my impression is that in model comparison, you might look at different statistics um, of goodness of fit and they might conflict with each other. So it's useful to say a priori, well, here's the fit statistic we care about the most, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I mean, from their description of model comparison, I was trying to, it seemed to me that you could imagine sort of like specifying how you're going to like run this contest in advance, how you're going to decide what the winner is and what, what statistics you're going to use to determine that and things like that. But, but yeah, it could be that, that I just like don't have an understanding of how this works. So the thing that was in the back of my mind when, when they were talking about, well, it's just too complicated is like big clinical trials for like drug efficacy, mm -hmm. right? They are pre-registered. They have to be now. Right. And they're pretty fucking complicated. <laughs> Lots of unanticipated stuff happens. Mm -hmm. And yet somehow there, they manage to make it work, right? So I think if you can pre-register a clinical trial where you're going to give people in, I don't know, 30 different countries across five continents a vaccine and see who gets sick... You ought to be able to pre-register a study that looks at learning outcomes in schools, even if kids are moving between grades or something. This is one of the examples that they used. Right. That still seems less complicated to me than the vaccine thing. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, have you ever looked at a pre-registration for one of these huge studies? You all like what is it? Is it? It must be just a freaking disaster. I have not. I'm sure it's totally insane. I'm sure it's like <laughs> 50 pages. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, I would love to hear from listeners if we're missing something, if it's like, oh, I work in this area where pre-registration just wouldn't work, right? It's just like, there's just too much complexity. There's too many contingencies. It's just irreducible and you can't write down your decisions ahead of time. Maybe I'm just ignorant of those fields, right? Mm -hmm. If so, like, yeah, I would, I would love to hear from people. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, me too. Okay, so can I talk about the the moment that I felt the most frustrated during the podcast? Please, yes. <laughs> so uh, there was a point where um, it, 
Okay, yeah. So there was a point where they were talking about um, the dangers of pre-registration in terms of of traumatizing the next generation of students. So they say, I feel like we are traumatizing a generation of students by telling them to never look at their data. Um, and I mean, I think it's really important to dispel this um, misconception about pre-registration. Um, and it's, I mean, simple, we've already addressed it, right? So pre-registration uh, does not imply that people should not look at their data. Um, in fact, yeah, uh, I think most descriptions of pre-registration will be very clear that uh, pre-registration does not preclude any kind of exploratory analyses. You can absolutely do any analyses you want on your data. You can look at whatever you want and you can report those things. Uh, the only thing that pre-registration requires is that you specify that those were not included in your pre-registration. Um, but I also think uh, that this concern that we're traumatizing students. So it sounded like one of the inspirations for them um, recording this podcast and addressing this topic is um, concern that concerns that they're hearing from students in the statistics classes that they teach. Right. So um, it sounds like they teach about things like model comparison and things that are unfamiliar to me. And they talk about uh, doing data analysis that is data dependent in some cases and that they hear from their students like you like criticisms that if they looked at their data and they made any decisions dependent on that data that they're doing something unethical right and for me this highlights that um there might be ways that we can teach students about pre-registration that could be really misleading and problematic, right? So I would be really troubled if one of my students um, drew from our conversations about pre-registration that it was immoral to look at your data or to explore your data, or that um, testing statistical assumptions was somehow wrong or even that like deviating from your pre-registration or doing exploratory analyses and things like that are problematic. Like um, it seemed from, from their podcast that multiple students are getting this message about pre-registration and that sort of concerns me. Yeah. I mean, I do think that there's a valid point there that for some students who are early on, they get this message about you should pre-register and they just overgeneralize it. Right. I don't know. I, I traumatize. <laughs> I hope they were kidding, right? Like yeah. that seems hyperbolic, right? But but I have had this situation where it's like, you know, pre-registered analysis was this and it didn't turn anything up. And then I think the right answer is just go explore that data set, right? Like in terms of the pre-registered analyses, it was null, but like maybe you can learn something from it. And I, I think they're like less willing to do that. I, I don't know that they necessarily think that it's wrong, but they're not really thinking. They're just always kind of thinking in confirmatory mode because, right. you know, that, yeah, they've been told that that's better. And I, I think uh -huh. it is useful to be like, well, as long as you're not going to claim that this was run in a confirmatory way, and probably we're not going to try and publish this study at all, but we're going to use it to inform future studies, you know, go p-hack the shit out of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, just find some interesting things in there, and then we can test in future studies whether those things are replicable or not. Right. Yeah, but to me, that's just like, yeah, okay, students are going to have some misconceptions. That's true. Students sometimes misunderstand things. It's like your job to explain where they're wrong, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it feels um, easy to address those misconceptions, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's like, like we wouldn't be like, because they misunderstood and, you know, want to misapply this idea. Well, I guess we have to throw the whole thing out. Right, right, right. Yeah. Instead, we can just say, oh, that's not what you have to do in a pre-registration. Right. I mean, all sorts of like stats and methods stuff, like as students, we got that stuff wrong all the time. And you would say like, well, you know, people often, you know, misuse ANOVA, <laughs> therefore nobody's allowed to do one anymore. You know, it's just... I mean, maybe that ought to be the rule, but but it's just like that's not that's not how this works, right? Yeah, people will get things wrong, and then then what we need to do is to explain to them, no, that's a misconception. Actually, it's totally fine to explore. You just can't call it confirmatory after you've explored. Right, right. Um, and I would agree with the with the hosts that um, if that were the implication of pre registration, that would be 
yeah, problematic and maybe even borderline unethical, right? So um, it's easy to imagine that we could be running these studies and just like, I don't know, totally missing the real finding or not anticipating a really important moderator or, um, yeah, proposing the wrong analysis or whatever, right? So the in the like sort of like perfect world of pre-registration, um, scientists have a lot of insight, right? Like they're making the right predictions, they're planning their study in the right way. And I definitely think that we want a system that doesn't make that assumption, right? So assumes that sometimes, yeah, we're, we're short-sighted, we have blind spots, um, we, there are things that we just never consider. And those are things that we can address through exploration and definitely don't want to get rid of exploration. Yeah. What percentage of your studies are pre-registered, would you guess? Um, I would say 80%. So at this point, things that are not pre-registered. Um, so I mentioned to you last podcast that I have a student who's interested in doing um, qualitative analysis. I don't know whether we'll try to pre-register that, actually. So I, would, I haven't read anything about pre-registering qualitative work. There might be things that you can pre-register that would be helpful. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just totally ignorant in this area. Um, but that's like something where I'm like, okay, maybe this is not where pre-registration fits the best. And then there have been like exploratory. Oh, so one example would be like exploratory factor analysis kind of things. And then another example would be, um, we conducted one big study that was, um, where we had a pre-registration and many confirmatory analyses. Um, and then we had a lot of data that we just didn't plan for. And so we did an exploratory, we wrote an exploratory paper based on um, data from that big study that wasn't included in the initial pre-registration. Right. You're you're actually pre-registering more than I am. I would say mine, maybe it's half, maybe it's a little less than half. So the cases in which I don't, um, some papers have a ton of internal replication. And in that case, I often don't bother pre-registering unless the study is particularly like big and expensive. And then I'm like, well, I want to get the most out of it, right? So like, and typically what it's been mm -hmm. is I've run very similar things a few times before. And that would be like, all right, I really want to nail it. Or maybe it has like, you know, a behavioral DV or something where it's like, well, I want them to actually, you know, pay me money to do X or whatever. I'm like, okay, that's harder to get. I'm going to get a bigger sample. It's going to be pricier. I'm going to pre-register it. Whereas something that I think of is like, being sort of lower stakes and that I'm going to replicate anyway, then sometimes I'm like, I don't bother. I don't have a great justification for that, honestly, other than laziness. Just like, eh, I don't want to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right? it's a lot of work. It's work, right? Yeah. It's work that I don't want to do. Um, and then the other, there's, there's some studies where it's like EFA type stuff. I typically wouldn't mm -hmm. pre-register that. Um, there's a paper that I was just working on recently, so it's top of mind. Where we are doing CFA, but we basically, like, we repeat the exact same study again. So it's like, we do CFA, we use the modification indices to, like, make some adjustments to the model to change the fit, but then obviously you're changing your model based on the data, right? And so then we just run the exact same study again and run that same model with those same modifications that we made based on the previous data set. And so there I didn't bother to pre-register it because it's like, look, we're going to do exactly what we did in the previous study and we're reporting both, right? So it's like, okay, well, then it seems sort of beside the point. Um, and then the last thing is, and I'm open to, to hearing that this is misguided, but I've been doing quite a bit of um, natural language analyses on social media stuff. And there, we just have enormous samples. So either an effect is like wildly significant, you know, it's like so significant that R just says, you know, 10 to the minus 16 or whatever, or it's really mm -hmm. not. There's no like middle ground. There's no like, oh, it's 0.03. Or if one comes up 0.03, I'm like, ah, oh, that's probably not real, right? So at that point, I'm just like, you know, dismissing it because it's like not P is less than 00001. And at that point, I'm like, well... I don't know. Am I like able to put my thumb on the scales with analytic flexibility in a way that would create a false positive? I don't know. 
You're so misguided, you all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alexa. Thank you. You know, I feel like it's a mark of true friendship <laughs> that you would be willing to tell me such a thing. <laughs> Criticism is, um, yeah, yeah, the mark of true trust. That's right. That's how you show love. All right. Um, so have we covered this topic adequately? Is there anything else that you wanted to hit before we go? Mm, oh, maybe one thing. So... Uh, the podcast spends a little bit of time on like suggested solutions to the problems with pre-registration. Um, and one of the things that they suggest is like the idea of a lab notebook. Um, and yeah, I thought this was interesting because so the idea with the lab notebook is that it's sort of like documenting the decisions that you made Um and so rather than necessarily like planning everything in advance, you're like documenting everything that you did. And this seems to like uh, overlap a lot with the idea of having open workflow. Um, and this is something that's sort of like been um, talked about increasingly. I've, I've, I've seen like sessions on it at, at conferences and things like that. And um, I think uh, Katie Corker has a chapter on, on this, on this topic. Um so, so that was something where I think that that idea is a good idea and that there's, there's some people who have been thinking, thinking deeply about this idea of, of something like a nat lab notebook. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that's a great idea. Uh, I think more people ought to do it, myself included. I don't think it's at all compatible with pre-registration, right? Like it just shifts some of the planning, the analyses to before you've seen the data and then, of course, right. you want to carefully record, like, why, if you deviated from those planned analyses, why you did that. So it yeah. really, in essence, it is that. It is recording what you did and why. Right. So we're, we're on board with Lab Notebook, then. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, um, I'm sure that the Quantitude hosts will be heartened to hear that we're ending on a note of agreement with their suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Proud of us. All right. Well, uh, thanks as always for joining us, listeners, and we'll talk to you next time.